their covenant with God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we will see in these 33 verses a reminder to this new generation that it's their covenant with God. And the emphasis here that as the Holy Spirit moves and works in through and God gives to Moses these words, it's to remind them that whoever is listening to his words and listening to his word now and even today, it's their covenant. It's our covenant with God. And so as we take a look here, the Jews were a covenant people and Deuteronomy defines the terms of their covenant that God has established with their their, uh, their parents, their grandparents, all the way back to the fathers. But the emphasis is that this new generation that grew up in the desert, the wilderness, that was 20 or younger, uh, or 19 and younger, I should say, uh, who grew up and now are the adults and are going to lead the charge in the promised land, they needed to hear directly from Moses the covenant that God had made with them. And understand that the Lord had conquered their enemies and set the Jews free from bondage and they were his special people. And because that they were were his special people, there were expectations or responsibilities for being those special people of God. So here in chapter 5, we see Moses began by calling Israel to hear God's covenant, not only to hear it, to learn it, and to do it whatever it commanded. Nothing new. Same for us today. God wants us to hear his word. We need to learn his word. We need to do his word, regardless of what he says and he commands us to do. And so here at Deuteronomy chapter 5, the first five verses, the setting of this covenant, the requirements of God's covenant with Israel, it starts by saying, Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, or Mount Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. There's the definition. When their parents and grandparents were alive, it was their covenant. They were, they were part of what that was, their covenant. Well, they're dead. <laughs> it's not their covenant. It's now the children's covenant. It's now the grown-ups now covenant. It's their covenant. They're alive. They're present at that moment. Verse 4, the Lord walked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of God. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up the mountain, he said. So we see here that Israel was bound to the covenant they agreed to, which we saw and studied back in Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. And yet their covenant was made with the previous generation that was hearing Moses' voices at this point in time, which perished in the wilderness because, if you remember, their disobedience. And the present generation had to understand and had to embrace that it was their covenant. If they were to enjoy the blessings of their covenant, they had to embrace that covenant. And how quickly they, you know, you sit there and go, yeah, I just want the blessings, but I certainly don't want the responsibilities. And they're trying to, Moses is trying to get across, wait a minute, this is not your father's anymore. They're, they're not alive. This is yours, and you need to embrace what took place and the fact that God's established this 
covenant with his people. But you must embrace it if you're going to receive and enjoy the blessing. And when it says here, made a covenant, it literally means to cut a covenant. Or the idea is cutting is associated with a covenant. Because covenants were always sealed with sacrifice. The cutting of a sacrifice victim had to take place. And that all went back. And we studied that in Exodus about the sacrifice during that covenant that God established to them. But here the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. It was this, this original previous generations. Moses, Moses didn't deny the fact that it was given in previous generations. But he wanted to drive the point that it was their covenant with God. They couldn't say, well, that was, that's my, that was my parents' religion. That was how they did it, but it's not mine today. It's a new generation. It's a new way of doing things. No, no. Moses is like, no, no. You, you can't sit there and make your own and, and live your, for God and have your, make your own way to God. No, no. There was a covenant that God made. It is your covenant, and you must follow those commandments and the requirements of that covenant. You can't just say it only applied to your parents' generation or your uh, father's fathers or Abraham-only covenant. No, no, this is your covenant because you're the one that's alive and God has a covenant with you. Now, it's interesting. It's, it's, we see in these first five, words, five verses, it says, Lord, talk with you face to face. Well, this generation wasn't, most of them were not alive at that point at the base of Mount Sinai. But here, the demonstration that, that this term face to face doesn't mean literally face to face in the scripture, but it's a he, uh, Hebronic uh, figure of speech, meaning it's an intimate or free communication that you have. So in Deuteronomy 4.12 specifically says that Israel saw no form. You only heard a voice. Yet they had this remarkable, transparent communication with God. And it's a figure of speech that face-to-face applies. Meaning he spoke to you directly. Even though it wasn't a literal face-to-face, it was a direct communication and you knew it. Has it ever happened to you? Where God reveals to and literally speaks to you about something directly? Like he's face-to-face with you, but it's only a figure of speech? That is why in Exodus 33.11 says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. That's how intimate God's word, his voice spoken to the mind of a person. It's like a friend speaking to you. Exodus 33, 20, the Lord said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So it's not a little face-to-face. He was talking about a figure of speech that Moses had this free, unhindered communication with the Lord. That's what it means here in the scripture about face to face. So I st- and, he, and he talks about to this populace, this generation, I was the mediator between you and God because no one could touch the mountain. No one could go up to the mountain. It was only God's appointed position was for him to represent. And he was this mediator. And he says, I stood between the Lord and you at the time. So Israel could not bear such free and unhindered communication with God because their hearts weren't right. 
So they asked Moses, you represent, you go. They were so fearful and afraid to even think that God would even come close because they knew what would happen to him. And Moses certainly was that mediator. In verse 6, it says that we see the very first commandment. Now Moses communicates these Ten Commandments. And we see the first commandment says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So before God commanded anything of man, he declared who he was and what he did for Israel. The reason I'm about to tell you what your requirements are now in this covenant is because I want to remind you right up front, I'm the one that set you free. I'm the one that took you out of bondage. I'm the one that brought you out of captivity. I'm the one who has given you a new life. I have the position as a Lord to tell you now what your requirements are and how you are to live. It's not complicated. We just don't like that. <laughs> we don't like being told. We like the being free. We like the fact that someone just saved you and set you and given you salvation and has given you a new life and a new start and a new fresh way and stuff. But then when God says, this is what I want you to do. No, I, I don't feel like doing that. <laughs> what happened if God said, I didn't feel like taking you out of Egypt? You'd be crying out. So we see right here, he sets it right up. You, I brought you out of Egypt. So the foundation must be clear in our relationship here. Because of whom God was and what he did for his people, he has the absolute right to tell us what to do. And we have the absolute obligation to obey him. That's the relationship here. This is a great act of redemption that God did for them. He redeemed them. He 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 brought them out of bondage. And you would think that would have been motivative enough for the people to absolutely worship and be obedient to the God who was with them all the way through the wilderness because they set them free from the bondage of Egypt. You would think that would motivate people to serve God, wouldn't you? To be obedient to God, to know that you've been set free. No, unfortunately it's not. It should be. For people to listen to God's law and obey it, just as the redeemed you and I have in Christ should motivate us to obey him as well. Because we've been set free, we've been redeemed. Each year at Passover, the Jews would remember of God's great act of salvation. And each time the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, they would celebrate the Passover to remind them of God's redemptive power. We celebrate through the Lord's Supper God's redemptive power in our lives. And that last, the Lord's Supper reminds that Christ died for us and we might be saved from our sins and belong to him. And even today, the Lord wants us to obey him. Not as slaves. Not as slaves. Cringing at every time. Oh, I think God is speaking to me. Oh, I'm cringing. Oh, I'm asking. No, it's not that kind of relationship. It's one of grateful children. Oh, I'm so grateful every time God speaks to me and asks me to whatever he wants me to do. I'm so grateful that I can actually do it. 
Why? Because they love, we love our Heavenly Father. And we appreciate all He has done and is who He is to us. That's the relationship that we have. See, we'll see that the first four commandments of the ten had to do with Israel's relationship to God's personally knowledge, acknowledging this personal relationship, acknowledgement, and that they would be but only one God in their lives. And the first four commandments, it deals with that, that let's get our, your life and, my, and my, our relationship right. And that's the emphasis of the first four commandments. And then when we take five through ten, it's relationship with others. And we will, we will see that and play that out here tonight. But it says, you shall have no other gods before me. So the very first commandment logically flows with the understanding who God is and what he has done for us. He's the one that created us. He was the one who redeemed us. He's the one that brought us out of bondage and set us free. So we then, he says, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. You're only going to have, there's only one God, and he's the only one you're going to worship and serve. No other gods. See, in the days of ancient Israel, there was a great temptation to worship the gods of materialism. Baal was the god, a god of, he was a god of weather and the financial success. I mean, it was all about materialism, and people in those days worshipped all that god. They also worshipped the god of sex, Astaroth, the goddess of sex, romance, reproduction. That is a goddess they worshipped. And there was a number of other local deities that they were always worshiping, had names to. And we think, how could they do that? But it's no different today. We, we have the same challenge of being tempted to worship the same type of gods. We just don't have the old-fashioned names and images attached to them like they did back in the ancient Israel. Or just more sophisticated culture, you know. <laughs> we just had a little bit more up-to-date names. But it's no different. You're still worshiping materialism and worshiping sex in all forms and sizes and shapes. But God says here, no other gods before me. Now, it's interesting when you see that and you first initially think about those words, it does not apply that it was permissible to have any other gods. Okay, so you're telling me if I put God first that it's okay to have these other little gods. No, is that what it's saying? There's no lineup that if I'm worshiping the true God that I can have all these other little gods and that's small G's that I can still worship and, and, and pursue in my life. No, that's not what he's saying. The idea is that there would be no other gods before the sight of the true God of our life. Before me, it means to literally to my faith. There's, you only are focused on me and that is it. This means God demands to be more than added to our lives. Oh, what's changed in your life today, Corey? It's been so much change. What's going on? Oh, I've added God to my life. That's not what it means. How many times have you heard or maybe have said, someone says, well, you've really changed. Yeah, I've got religion in my life now. Or I've, I've, I've kind of stirred in Jesus a little bit. 
No. No, my brothers and sisters, that's not what it means. We don't just add Jesus to the life we already have. We must give him all of our lives. It should be, I turn my life over to Jesus. I am no longer mine anymore. I'm his. Completely. That's the right answer. Failure to obey this commandment is called idolatry. If you have any other small little G's of God's in your life, you're in idolatry. Very clear in the scripture, in the Old, in New Testament, Old Testament and New Testament. If we are to free or flee idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. There should be not even a debate about these things. There's something that captivates your time, your money, your energy, your, 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 your just devotion, and you will, no one will get between you and that item or thing. You've got an idol, you've got idolatry, you have got to flee from it. Those lives marked by habitual idolatry will not inherit the kingdom of God. God is clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12, Ephesians 5, 5, and Revelation 21, 8, and 22, 15. It is absolutely clear in the scripture. You cannot be in habitual idolatry and think you're still a Christian and will inherit the kingdom of God. Idolatry is at work, is a work of the flesh. We see that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. So when people say, I don't know how this happened. It's because your flesh is dominating. You're not walking in the spirit, you're walking in the flesh. That is why you can't get rid of those little, those things that control you in your life. And those things that are controlling your idolatry is just marks of the old life instead of the new life. You've got to have a new life. God has freed you from that. If you're a child of God and you've got the Spirit of God and you've been born again, there is absolutely a new life. And those idols will start just dropping off like fly. I mean, just boom, boom, boom. They'll just disappear. Why? Because you're running toward Jesus so fast you're not even thinking about these things anymore. It's a new life. And it's absolutely clear in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 5.11 that we are not to associate with those who call themselves Christians who are idolaters. That's the hardest thing in the Christian life. When you walk away and you're born again and you've been changed and you want none of those idols anymore in your life, be it people or things or organizations or what... Um, Social, whatever it may be that grip, grips you by the flesh, when you come to Jesus and you still have that association of friends, it is the hardest thing to do is to, to walk and follow Jesus. And when that happens, all the idolaters behind you that you were once, they're like, where are you going? Where have you been? Hang with us. Spend time with us. And they will try to pull you back in. That's what they do. They want you to worship the little God that they worship, like you used to worship. But 1 Corinthians 5.11 says we, we must, we've got to distance ourselves until, Lord willing, they'll see that your life change and they'll desire to follow you and follow Jesus as well. That is what you want to have happen. In verses 8 through 10, we see the second commandment. 
It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image like likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So we see the second commandment prohibited not only idolatry regarding false gods, but it's also dealt with making any image of any created thing which we might worship. And the key thing is creating something that you're going to bow down and worship to. Now in that day, as well as our own, worship was tied closely to images. To idealized images or images of the mind of man that created for the representation of a God. And God will not allow us to depict him or any such image nor a replace him with any other image and bow down and worship it. Now, the second commandment doesn't forbid making any image of something for artistic ability or artistic purposes. God himself commanded Israel to make images of the cherubim. We see that in Exodus 25, 18, and chapter 26, 31 of Exodus. It just forbid the making of images as an aid to worship God. That is what we have to be very careful with not to do. John 4, 24 says, it kind of explains a little bit from the second, uh, second commandment. It says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So the, the use of images or other material things as a focus or help to worship denies who God is. He is spirit. And how must we worship him in spirit and truth? Paul touches on this, talking about futility of trying to make God into some of our own image. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into image made like corruptible man and birds and, and four-footed animals and creeping things. And that we see that Paul noting in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. You remember when when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, what, were they, what did they do? They took all the gold and boiled it down and made it into what? The golden calf. So that right there, God is like, he even told them, don't do this. And by the time he got to the bottom of Mount Sinai, what did they have already done? That's why he gave the commandment. Make sure they don't be building any golden calf. To worship. And what else were they doing? They were worshiping sexually. They were working. Oh, there were all kinds of junk going on down there, parting away at the bottom of the hill. So how can it be said that God is a jealous God? God's jealousy is love in action. You have to understand that. He's a jealous God because it's his love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival at all. Not because he's selfish. He's not a selfish God. He wants us all for himself because he knows that upon the loyalty to him depends our very moral life. 
Anything that gets between you and God is going to cause a problem. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. He desires an intimate relationship and nothing or no one get between you and him. That's how much he loves you. And see, he says, if you're not careful visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, this doesn't mean God punishes us directly for the sins of our ancestors. We dealt with that in Ezekiel 18, if you remember. But he can permit, he can permit the sad consequences of those sins to affect future generations and physically, mentally, and spiritually. Your sins that you commit today can affect your second, third, fourth generations. And God is not going to impede and stop those generations if there's not something dealt with here. Children are prone to, to imitate their parents. And if you're committing sin and acting like sin in a certain way, your kids are going to learn it and it's going to go into the next generations if it's not dealt with by God's way. But we also know the Lord blesses successive generations of people who honor and obey him. See, we always focus on the negative. Oh no, I hope my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids don't become like me. If you're godly and you're obeying and following a good representative of God, you'd absolutely want them to be watching you and, and uh, acting like you. As a grandparent, great-grandparent, and a generation, you want those kids to look up and say, that is a godly example for me. That is what we need to focus on. Important words are of those who hate me, he says. It's if the descendants love God, they will not have the iniquity of the Father's visit on them. If they love God, they will not have to deal with the things that their parents or their grandparents dealt with previous because they didn't walk with God. They had, a, they had idolatry. They had other gods. They didn't do it God's way. Now keep in mind, this is dealing from a nation perspective. All of Israel, it's more of a, a nation as a whole that is God is laying this out to all the people at a national scale. And nations that forsake the Lord will be judged. And that judgment that God brings upon that nation will affect other generations to come. Can you see that? When a nation turns against God, the nation gets judged and all the generations to come will be part of that. They will be affected by that because the previous generation screwed it up and walked away from God. It's serious how a nation lives for God or not. So many times people say, I don't care what anyone else is doing in this nation. It only matters with me. Well, then you don't understand the scripture. A nation can be judged. We need to be praying for our nation. There would be a great revival, great repentance. That God would not judge this country, this nation. In the next command, we see the third commandment. We see in verse 11, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him um, guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we see here that God's name represents God's character and God's reputation. 
When you deal with God's name, you're dealing with his character and reputation. And to honor his name means to make him look good to people around us. And when you call yourself a Christian, you're taking on the Christ name. You're taking on God's character and, and representation as I'm a child of God. I'm in his family. But then that means you need to look, make God look good in other people's eyes. You can't claim to be a Christian and then turn around and act like a heathen and living like the rest of the world. It doesn't make God look good. But how do you play that out? We all know that profanity is one of the top ones. It's using the name of God and blasphemy and cursing and, 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 and like a flippant kind of superficial, stupid way using his name in general around your life, in common day-to-day -day talking in life. That is not good. It is not a Christian. Or hypocrisy, claiming the name of God by acting in a way that disgraces him. I'm a Christian, but then disgraces him by living a life absolutely contrary from the word of God. You cannot, I cannot, you cannot, no one can blame, oh, it's the way it is at the work site. That's the problem. Everyone talks, like you just kind of, kind of, you get it wrapped up in it. No, gossip doesn't matter if they're all gossiping. You're not to gossip. It, as soon as you do, the most heathen per the person who doesn't want anything to do with God, and you're trying to witness to them one week, the next week they hear you're gossiping like anyone else, they're going to point you out in a heartbeat. And you call yourself a Christian. Jesus communicated the idea of this command to his disciples in prayer when he taught us to have regard to the holiness of God's name. Hallowed be your name, Matthew 6, 9 says. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. It's everything is at God's name. You don't mess with God's name. But it's interesting. The Jewish people took it to an extreme when it came to this, where it talked about holding him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The, this, this would be, would, the Jewish people would go to extreme lengths in attempting to fulfill this command. To even refuse to write the name of God on a piece of paper. Oh, it's too holy. I'm not even going to write it. I can't write it out. And the fear that the paper might be destroyed and the name of God be written in vain. Now the fourth commandment we see in verses 12 through 15 it says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now it's a kind of an interesting note here in this commandment that the nine of the ten commandments 
are repeated in the New Testament epistles. Nine of them, except the fourth commandment. The Sabbath day. Why is it not in the New Testament? Well, because it only applied for the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the current covenant that they were, ta- they were talking about. It didn't apply to us. Why? Because the Sabbath day was a special sign between Israel and the Lord. We saw that and we spoke and taught on that in Exodus chapter 31. Nehemiah chapter 9 and Ezekiel chapter 20. You will also find this references. And it was not given to any other nation except Israel. Now, here he's being, Moses is reminding them that the seventh day, or they worship on Saturday, was commanded to be respected as a day of rest. Rest was for the, all of Israel. The servants, the slaves, as well as visitors. Everyone was equal on that day. They were to worship and to, to just focus on God and absolutely no work whatsoever. And it was a beautiful thing for the nation because God declared absolute essential to humanity the dignity of all. Even in the ancient Israel time, when women were not looked as equal, the slaves were not looked as equals, strangers were not looked as equals in many respects. But here on this day, everyone was treated equally to be doing the same thing, and that was to honor and glorify and worship God. They were to keep it holy. Some of them we know even in Luke chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 that the mind of the Jewish leaders and the disciples were guilty of four violations. Remember that scene when they told the disciples, you're breaking the Sabbath, you're breaking these laws. What were they doing? Do you remember in Luke 6? They were just taking grain because they were hungry and they were taking it and biting and eating. And, and so what, because they reaped, they broke the law. Because they, they threshed it, they broke the law. Uh, widowed it, they broke the law. They uh, prepared it with food, they, they broke the law. All these laws that these Jewish leaders were making up. Even today, in some of the strict Jewish Orthodox Jews, you can't turn the light on and off. You can't turn the stove on and off. You can't, you know, turn a switch. I remember we went to Israel the first time. I had to help a young older couple because he couldn't pick up the front of the wheelchair to get his wife out of the street. I had to go over there and pick up the front and put her up on the sidewalk. And when we got to the elevators, they have special elevators. You do not touch the buttons because you can't touch a button to go up the elevator. It can get really extreme. But for six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and God established this pattern for the Sabbath at the time of creation. We see that in Genesis 2, 3. But the most important purpose of the Sabbath was to serve as a shadow of the rest that we will have in Jesus. See, some claim that Christians are required to keep the Sabbath today. But if you understand that in the New Testament, it makes it clear that Christians are not under the obligation to observe a Sabbath day. Where do we see that? Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, and Galatians 4, 
9 through 11. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the purpose and plan of the Sabbath for us and in us. We studied that just recently in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. So you and I, believers today, have their rest in Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. We rest in Christ every day, not just one certain day. We also see that in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, but it also looked forward to the eternal rest that we have as a promise as a child of God in heaven. We see that in Revelation chapter 14 verse 13. Galatians 4.10 clearly speaks to us that we are not bound to observe days and months and seasons and years. We are to experience his rest every day. Not just one day a week. We, the rest of knowing we don't have to work to save ourselves. But our salvation was accomplished in Jesus for us. And it was speaking of the shadows of things to come, but the substance of Christ. We see that Colossians 2, 6 and 7. We have a rest in Jesus that is ours to live every day. Now, some Christians are also very dogmatic about observing Saturdays. And as a Sabbath, as opposed to a Sunday... And they will, you will meet some who say, you're really not a Christian or you're really not really being a Christian in a way that you are only to, to worship on the Sabbath and that is a Saturday, not a Sunday. Well, again, legalistic, legalism is wild and free these days. But if you know the scriptures, because we are free to regard all days are given to God, it makes no difference which day we serve. We're to serve God every day. And in some ways, Sunday is absolutely more appropriate for us as a believer. Why? Because being the day Jesus rose from the dead, Mark 16, 9, is first met with his disciples, John 20, verse 19. And the day when Christians gathered for fellowship, we see in Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2, was always on the Sunday, not a Saturday. So let me make it clear for you. Under the law, men worked towards God's rest. You labored six, then you rested. That's under the law. But under and after Jesus' finished work on the cross, the new covenant, the believer enters into the rest and then goes from that rest out to do the good work that God's calling us to do. It's flipped. The Lord's Day commemorates the new covenant of grace. It opens up the week with rest in Christ and the work flows from that day. That's why we have freedom to worship God every day 
and find and just do what God's called you to do. But yes, there's still a tremendous value and commandment when it comes to working six days and finding a day of rest. Every Christian should have a deliberate way to serve God and advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But you must understand, you just don't go out and just work, 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 work. And let me make one statement, a simple statement for those who would not agree with the scripture and what I just said, but I'm just telling you, it's unbiblical to make the observations or observance of a day as a test of your spirituality or orthodoxy. You're off track. And I encourage you, if that is your mindset, please study the scriptures. Now, here in verse 16, we see the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment moves us from our relationship to the Lord to living out the relationship with other people. That's the remaining of the Ten Commandments. We see that it's how we live and bring uh, this application into the lives and relationship with other people. It says, honor your father and your mother. So the very first thing he addresses, how you and your relationships within the home. It says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So right here up front, honoring your father and mother is an essential building block. It's a foundational stability in the health of any society is how you treat your mother and father and how those relationships are. And honoring and, and, and looking up and, and understanding that the younger generation are constantly should not be at war with the older generation. The young should not always be pushing the old generation aside and, and saying they don't know anything and always looking to themselves and not into the older generation as it will derode the foundation of a society and will be d- destroyed. We see that today. Some states and in many countries, euthanasia is, is, old generation has no value. They don't contribute to the society. They don't make money. They're just draining the system, blah, blah, blah. Let's just, they can let them die. I mean, it's, it is immense mentality. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. It's ungodly. Jesus used the way the Pharisees interpreted the commands as an example of how one might keep the law with a limited interpretation, yet the spirit of the commandment we see in Matthew 15 verses 3 through 6. Ephesians 6 2, Paul repeated this command, emphasizing that your days may be long if you honor uh, your father and your mother. In verse 17, we see the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, which requires that we honor human life and not commit murder. Anyone who says it's okay to commit murder to a human life is absolutely against God. You take it from the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're going against God. You will not win. You will suffer the consequences. God is the giver of life and only he has the right to take it. He gives life, he takes life. He's the only one. And because we've made in the God's image, murder is an attack against God. Go back to Genesis 1, verses 26-27, and Genesis 9-6. So the question is, what's the difference between to kill and to murder? Because some wonder how God can approve for capital punishment. Exodus 19-12 
How is that a, prohibi a prohibition of murder? The, the simple answer that in Hebrew, as well as the English, there is a distinction between to kill and to murder. As opposed to killing, murder is the taking of life without legal justification, an execution after due process. Or moral justification, which means killing in defense. We see that you can kill in defense because Exodus 22.2. Only the state has the right to take human life in case of capital offense. We see that noted in Romans 13. How did Jesus deal with this subject matter? Jesus carefully explained the heart of his commandment, and he showed that it is also prohibited us from hating someone as well. In Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, because we can wish someone dead in our hearts, yet never have the courage to absolutely, actually do it, does not mean you're somehow okay. Jesus said, you are morally murdering equivalent murder to someone in your heart and you're not to do that now why did God give us this law to his people the law was to restrain and punish the people for their crimes not to reform them they did not give punishment to reform these people. They're purely to give, restrain, and punish them for their crimes. While the law can't change the human heart, we know that. We studied that in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. It can restrain and punish those who defy its authority and refuse to obey its concepts. Now, in verse 18, we see the seventh commandment, and it says, You shall not commit adultery. God calls for pu sexual purity and the honoring of marriage as God's appointed way for the proper use and enjoyment of human sexuality that he has given. You are not to commit adultery. It's an act in itself is condemned. God allows no justification for someone to sleep with another person out of marriage. There is none, no extramarital sex, such as saying, my partner doesn't understand me. That's why I sleep with this other person. She doesn't love me. He doesn't love me, has never loved me. So I have to get this desire fulfilled somehow. That doesn't justify it. God led us to be as one. We just know in his eyes we're one. No, you cannot. Or maybe this one I've heard. Maybe God allowed this to happen to make me see that I need some freedom from that woman. That's why he's brought this other woman in my life. No. <laughs> it's sin. You're going against God. Stop rationalizing in your head. The New Testament clearly condemns adultery. Galatians 5.19 Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, go on and on and on. It is sin. Jesus absolutely 
address the commandment through this. A woman to lust for her in your heart is sin. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. There's no question, and I'm not going to go into any more of this. Back in these days, it was a capital crime to be caught in adultery. In today's society, it's the, that's what you should be doing. And it's glorified in every form or fashion. But let me remind you, God can forgive sexual sins. But that doesn't mean he will interfere with the painful consequences if you go outside his, his will. What do you mean by that? Well, he'll forgive you the fact that you had an adulterous affair. But that doesn't mean he's going to deal with get healing you from your herpes or AIDS. Child out of wedlock and all the pain that comes from all that. In verse 19, we see the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. This commandment is another important foundation for human society. It establishes the fact that you as a person have the right to personal property. And that clearly God entrusted certain possessions to certain individuals. And other people or states are not permitted to take those possessions from those people without due process of law. If you do, it's called stealing. And it goes against God. We, cannot also, uh, we can also steal from God. We see that, of course, this demands we honor God with our financial resources. We know that. are not to be guilty of robbing him. We see that noted in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. What is God is God's. But we can also rob God by refusing to give him ourselves for obedience and his service. I'm not doing anything for God. I'm too busy. You're robbing him. That's not a good thing. Why? Because he bought us with and owns us. Knowing in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed from, with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of, of Christ. That is why if you're not doing what he's called you to do, you're robbing him. You were bought with a price. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6.20 it says, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Ephesians 4.28 gives the solution to stealing. If that is a problem in your life, you want to know what the, the solution is? Ephesians 4.28, study it. Let him who steal, stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Do you want to solve your problem with stealing? Then work hard and look for ways to give that money and ability to other people in need. That's your solution. Verse 20, we see the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We can break the ninth commandment through slander of another person, through talebearing, 
gossiping, creating false impressions by being silent, by questioning the motives behind everyone's actions, and even through false flattery to get your thing, something from someone. All of those things can be bearing false witness against your neighbor. The New Testament puts it this way. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Colossians 3.9. We're studying in James 3. If you were here last week. Christian maturity is shown by the ability to speak is not, it's not shown by the ability to speak your minds however you want to. Spiritual maturity is showing the controlled tongue and being very mindful of what you say that comes off that tongue, that it's spirit-controlled. Satan is always there to encourage to lie. We know that. We see that in John 8, 44 and Acts 5, 3. But Jesus himself was the victim of false witness. So he understands what happens when someone is, has, is a false witness against you. But he also sees and understands when you're a false witness against someone else, and that is not acceptable to God. In verse 21, we see the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. So this is the first nine commandments focus on more on the Things we do. But this one, the 10th commandment, deals straight with the heart and its desires. And that's around covetousness. The word covet literally means to pant after. Oh, I gotta have that. that I gotta have his truck. Oh, oh I gotta have his, his house. The panting. The, I, I have gotta have. Do you see this? This is, this is incredible. This is, this is what I want. The coveting of someone else's. The covetousness works like this. It's very simple. The eyes looks at an object, a, a, a person or not, or not a person, and the mind admires it. And then the will goes over to it. I want, my will says, I want that. I want her. I want him. And the body moves in the process to get it. Always looking to figure out a way to make it happen. And just because you have not taken the final step does not mean you have not in the process coveted already. Just because you haven't got the possession. Just the fact that you're in the process, you're coveting. And that's sin. And it doesn't matter what the subject is or what it is. Hebrews 13.5 puts it well. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't cover anything else and everyone else. God is always going to be with you. You have everything. Ephesians 5.5 5 says it clearly. It says the last commandment in the first commandment. All is around against idolatry. For this you know that no covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of, God, of Christ and God. Luke 12.15 warns us. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For the one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. 
As a Christian, my brothers and sisters, we must rely upon the Holy Spirit. We must, as believers, rely in the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, verses 22 through 26, and live by the law of love that is laid out for us in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Don't strive to obtain. You don't even have to strive to obey these commandments. Do you know why? You don't have to strive. Because the life of God will flow through them, you and me, and enable us to fulfill the righteousness of God if we trust in him. And then lastly, verses 22 through 33 here, we see the last couple of things here. These words of the Lord spoke with all of our assembly in the mountain of the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thickness, darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. It was done. This is the covenant. This is the co- your covenant, their covenant. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to them. So it was when you heard the voice in, from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, surely the Lord your God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And, he, and we have heard his voice in the, from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man yet he still lives. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die. For whom is there all of all the flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking in the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord your God may say and tell us all the Lord your God says to you and we will hear and do it. So they're sitting here going, we'll, whatever he says to you, Moses, you represent, we'll do and be obedient, whatever you come back and tell us. But don't let us get near because we're going to die. We just know we're going to die if we get any more clear to the place. It's interesting. The, the message here from Mount Sinai is one that says, Stay away, for I am holy and you're not. Be very careful how you approach me. But under the new covenant, the message is, is come unto me. There's a way now you have the ability to come to God. Because we have a representation, a mediator, Jesus Christ himself. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 25, under the new covenant, have, have not come to Mount Sinai. Stay away. But we have come to Mount Zion, which is God's message has come unto me. We get to come unto God. He asks us to come to him, not to stay away. Verse 28, then the Lord heard the voice of our words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are are right in all that we have spoken. Oh, that they have, 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 
had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my, all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that you may be well with you and that you may, that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So here we say God was pleased with Israel's response. That they're willing to listen and do whatever Moses comes back from God and tells them to do. And God says, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. This is a good thing. I'm glad to hear this is perfect. That your heart is in a way and right at that moment. God is, likes what he's hearing and he saw in Israel. He hoped for them to wanting to desire to, to, be, to follow him and, and to be obedient to all of his commandments. But if you remember, it wasn't even 40 days later that they were worshiping the cow, the calf. It didn't take long for them to not listen and obey God's word. God's motive is calling for our obedience. Why does God call us to be to obedience? He says right here that it might be well with us. It'd be good for us. It'd be right for us to be obedient to God's word. When we have trouble obeying God, we we are clearly lacking one or both of things and of certain things in our, our lives. Either we forget his glory, how great and majestic he is, or we forget his love for us. I don't know if God really loves me. Or we forget both of them. I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, know that we serve a majestic God, an incredible God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And do not forget that God loves you. Don't let those, because if those two slide in your life, you're going to go squirrely and you're going to stray off away from the truths of God. You won't be stable. You must hold on to those two things.